welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, those producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, sound mixers, sound editors, uh, composers, and yes, we have a composer joining us today. He's actually on hold right now. Um, but before we get to him, let's just give you a little recap here. You know, I hope you all have checked out Freestyle 101 uh, Hip Hop History. And I hope you've all recovered from last week's show and Frank Meyer. Um, but don't worry, Frank will be back in a few weeks, I think, uh, to close out 2023. Uh, also, another big shout out for LTC, All Natural Beef Jerky. Uh, you can find it only in L.A. at Mom's Bar, 12238 Santa Monica Boulevard, one block west of Bundy. Definitely go get yourself some of this. It really is incredible, incredible jerky. And oh, And Pam is giving her thumbs up. Needless to say, you know, Frank may have been eating it on the air last week, but uh, Pam and I waited till after. Uh, and even Frank took some with him and had consumed it, I think, in the car driving back to his home. Uh, but it really is terrific. And kudos to Marcus Tiggs, who is the chef creator uh, and who hand makes every batch of TLC of LTC all natural beef jerky with love and care and his own special blend of spices. So I love this stuff and I hope I see Marcus this week because I need some more. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, having gotten that housekeeping out of the way, um, joining us today, another jam packed show, Matt Hutchinson, composer Matt Hutchinson is on hold right now. I'm going to bring him live in a minute. He's with us to talk about his new film, Your Lucky Day. You ever wonder what you would do if you won a $156 million lottery ticket? Or if you happened to be around someone and heard they had just won a $156 million lottery ticket? Well, we're going to talk to Matt about coming up with a score that fits a movie with different emotional dynamics and themes playing out. And then at the midpoint of the show, a film I am in love with. It's wild and wacky. It has a lot of heart. Adventures of the Naked Umbrella Man. Uh, Je writer and director Jerry Brunskill will be joining us to talk about the Naked Umbrella Man. I can't wait for that. But right now, without any further ado, a big welcome to Matt Hutchinson. Hi, Matt. Hi there. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you now. I can hear oh, you. Oh, excellent. Welcome, welcome. And, thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm thrilled. And thank you for juggling with Annie um, because your compadre, your lucky day compadre, uh, editor Nick Pazillo uh, was sick. So instead of you coming on the show next week, I get you today. And uh, yep. ho hopefully Nick will be recovered next week. And I'm talking to your director, Daniel Brown, uh, on Wednesday morning, on Wednesday afternoon. So 
it's my lucky week, I think, over the next seven days. <laughs> That's great. I'd say so. I'd say so. This is an interesting film, Matt. Um, and I didn't know what to expect when I saw it. But as I'm watching it, what struck me is this is not an easy film to score for. Granted, there are quite a few original needle drops popping in that are interwoven with your score and with in a sound mix that also embraces silence at certain points, uh, as well as gunfire. But <laughs> you see the posters, you think, your lucky day, gambling, mafia, lottery tickets. Yeah, somebody's going to win money. It's going to be great. Um this is what happens when people, you know, win money, bad things. Uh, <laughs> and that is exactly what happens here. When a little corner store, a man wins $156 million. There is a down-on-his-luck, low-life kind of thug, drug-dealing kid, uh, 20-something, and overhears this. Well, he decides he wants the lottery ticket. And he then proceeds to anybody in the store. He takes them hostage, uh, coming up with a plan to abscond with this lottery ticket without getting caught. And the situation goes from bad to worse. And it just does not, it's relentless in that respect. Uh, We see character dynamics shift, relationships People go from fear to the Stockholm Syndrome, as uh, some analyst or psychiatrist would describe it, when the hostages are now working with uh, (laughs) the criminal. Uh, It's really fascinating from that point of view. But then you have to come up with a score for this, Matt, (laughs) and not make it so tragic and so sweeping or downtrodden because you could have gone bigger go home with a sweeping dramatic Bernard Herman kind of you know disaster epic uh, or James Horner but no you had to find a balance here and because it's at Christmas you had to pop in some notes some instrumentation that is Christmassy Where do you even start? How do you even say yes to Dan Brown? Yeah, I'm crazy. I'll do this. (laughs) Well, great questions. I uh, met Dan 20 years ago, uh, and we were working. Actually, I'm going to slide back here. I'm going to switch my phone on different mode here. Um, I met Dan 20 years ago, uh, and, you know, I'm getting a really bad echo on my end. Um, You're fine on this end. We've got no echo here. Okay, okay, just want to make sure everything's okay. Um, so, yeah, you know, we, we met uh, working on a smaller project, uh, but we both lived in Seattle at the time. He was, uh, you know, a visual effects artist at a uh, production house in town, and, and I was doing post-audio. And, um, you know, we struck up a relationship that's endured all these years. Um, and right around that time, he had, he had just finished his first short film. And when I saw it, I just thought, wow, this guy is, is a genius. And... Uh, from that point on, I kind of felt like anything you're you're ever doing, I, I, count me in, you know. 
And so we actually um, worked on the original short form of Your Lucky Day, uh, which was, uh, had the same title, uh, back in 2010. Um, and that went viral online. Uh, I think he just posted it on Vimeo, if, if memory serves, and uh, it had millions of views. And, and so, you know, here we are coming back to this story again. Um, so, you know, we met about two, well, about a year and a half ago, uh, and he told me, you know, he, he had shot the feature, which he did in an amazing 16 days, I think, is, is how wow. quickly he filmed this movie. So pretty amazing. And um, he told me all about it, and I was and I was in. We knew it was going to be a dark film, a dark score. And in that conversation, you know, it, it had kind of escaped me that this was taking place on Christmas Eve. And so at the end of our conversation, I said, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure and reflect in the score? And he said, I want to make sure there's a holiday element there. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wow, OK, that's going to be an interesting challenge, you know. And uh, but it was also a great opportunity to do something different. And that's the thing why I love working with Dan is he's always got something, some sort of twist in his storytelling and in his style that pushes me to a place I probably wouldn't have arrived at on my own. And it always ends up being really cool. And I just feel like I end up with something I'm really proud of. And, uh, and it's largely due to his, his vision and direction. Wow. Now you were in a, a good position here because you had already uh, done score for the short. You now get this, the feature it's been shot as you well know, so often a composer may not have the benefit of having the whole film to look at, to compose from. Um, quite often you might have bits and pieces to try and come up with motifs along the way. Uh, mm -hmm. But I'm curious, did you bring, because I have not seen the short, so I'm curious, did you use any of the scoring from the short and bring it into the feature, or did you start totally from scratch? No, we started completely from scratch. Um, there was only a few minutes of original score in the short. It was, mm -hmm. I think, a 10 or 15 minute long film. So there wasn't a lot of music. And what I did was very, you know, kind of setting a mood or a tone. But there just wasn't enough time to try to do anything overly fancy, you know, uh, in terms sure. of thematic content or anything like that. Um, so this really was, you know, jumping in to this as if it was a, a brand new film. And he really did expand quite a lot on you know, the ideas that he presented in the short, you know, the, the short was really uh, just a quick shot of this, this concept of, you know, uh, the melee that ensues after somebody wins a lottery ticket worth 156 million in front of a group of people. Um, some of which you don't have the best of intentions, you know? So uh, that, that was kind of just it, you know, that was, it didn't develop much beyond that in the short, but the feature obviously has a lot of really interesting themes woven throughout, which is what makes yeah. the film, in my opinion, so rich and it gave me a lot of opportunity musically to to add a lot of depth i think to the score and a lot of subtext you know these people are presented with this extraordinary situation um and they have to decide what they're going to do and what's interesting to me is that everyone has their justifications you know no one thinks they're a bad person or what they're doing is wrong because they have their reasons and i think that's a really interesting idea to to get to play around with well, and it's not just the people in the in the store, but obviously, anytime you have a scenario like this, police are going to get involved. Uh, yep. And we re third act rolls around, and we really, Dan, I mean, it just Dan really goes out on a limb here, uh, 
and goes to the deepest, darkest depths of corruption. And I love what you do with the score in the third act with the music and the motifs because once we see exactly what's going on with this one aspect of this story, because we have so many different pockets happening here, but mm-hmm. we see this great corruptive aspect happening. And you could have gone balls to the wall with heavy percussion or a lot of tremolo or something. You didn't. And I thought that was really interesting. Yet the tension builds with your music. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, I, I am always grateful when what I do feels successful, <laughs> you know, and it's all, it is a challenge, you know, when you see something for the first time and what are we going to do musically? And, and honestly, for me, it's a lot of um, the first, you know, few days or weeks, um, depending on the schedule, of course, uh, is, is me, you know, banging my head against the wall and, um, and just seeing, trying things out and seeing what works and, and taking what, in this case, Dan had talked about, you know, doing um, and seeing, how it feels against picture because things can really change quickly when yeah. you, as soon as you, at least for me, as soon as I see the imagery, the pacing, the cut, the color of the film, it really informs me and inspires me about what to do. And so, you know, like you said, it would be, it would have been really easy just to do a really traditional dark kind of almost, you know, horror type score. Um, but there is an opportunity here to do something special, which I'm always looking for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and really, it was that, that holiday element that really opened <laughs> up some interesting ideas. How can we weave in some kind of, you know, very briefly, some little uh, recognizable holiday-type moments, but how do we kind of make it a little bit darker or a little stranger or unnerving? Um, so that was really fun just sonically to get to play with. Um, and also, I think it added an element of times, at times of uh, an element of, of fun that the movie kind of, you know, needed we talked about that a lot you know we some of the earlier versions of the score were darker and we we realized oh, this is playing too dark let's pump the brakes on that let's back off a little bit and let's add some some other interest here um so that this movie just doesn't seem too dark and too uh you know i think it would have felt a little bit off it needed it needed some sort of lightness to it at times and i i feel like we we came up with that well, I, and I agree. Uh, you really did. And I think what also helps here is because of the needle drops in here and the fact that we get some traditional Christmas songs, but mm-hmm. they are done. Their arrangements are just totally different than the upbeat, holly jolly standards that we're used to. It's very, you know, we get a lot of, we get the, the holiday jingle bells. I've never heard this version of jingle bells before. I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then you have to develop, have a score that integrates and works with that. Uh, and I love that we really get the the Christmas idea from the song, but yet it's so dour, which lets you then with your score get a little more upbeat. And I like that striking, con- that contrast there, because it was so synergistic. Thank you. Yeah, it definitely helped, I think, add a cohesiveness to the film, to, to have some of those elements. And it wasn't, you know, wasn't every cue, but there were very specific moments um, in the film 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be very careful not to give any spoilers. I know. Away, but there, <laughs> there's a moment um, that I just love. That was one of the very last cues to be finalized. And we, we uh, revised that cue quite a number of times. Uh, and it was when um, uh, the police officer, uh, well, there's someone makes a very important phone call. Let me put it that way. And, uh, or, and he's, he's waking up next to, you know, the melee that's just occurred and kind of coming to. And um, that was a moment where it was a pretty horrific moment. You know, yeah. you're, what you're seeing visually is, is, is pretty gory. And, uh, and so, you know, I had originally had a piece that was pretty dark there and, and Dan said, I really think this is a moment where we, we could, you know, lighten this up a bit and go much more holiday. And, um, and I remember thinking, wow, really? Okay. And so we, we did that and, and it really, really worked and it ended up being one of my absolute favorite moments of the film. That is actually a chilling moment in the film. Mm-hmm. It is really a chilling moment, but you do get a little a little relief or respite. You're breathing a sigh of relief in that moment, and part of it is due to the score, also due to the cinematography at that point, and going mm-hmm. in an extreme close-up on a cell phone that, you know, it's not in dark mode. It's bright, 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 bright with text messaging happening. Um, mm-hmm. So... That was an interesting sonic and visual moment when viewed in the thematics and that plot point. Um, I also like, okay, let, let's face it, a really cool musical moment also involves the sprinkler system. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was a fun... I, I couldn't wait to see that scene in the theater for the first time. So when we had our world premiere at the Fantastic Fest in Austin earlier this year, um, we it was cool. They uh, they let us in before the screening to, to fine-tune the sound to make sure that the volume was, was at a good spot. And I knew that that moment was going to... Um, to be a, a real important moment and maybe one to kind of anchor the, the overall volume of the movie around because it is a pretty intense moment there. Yeah. And it was super fun setting that up with the music. Um, you know, it's just, uh, I, I love, I love moments like that. And it really did get a, a great jolt out of the audience. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, and it's an extreme moment in the film. Now, yeah. once you, you have, you're going to do this, you're going to tackle this score you talk to Dan, you find out what he wants, and hey, add a little jolly holiday in there for me. Um, <laughs> where do you begin? Do you pick certain scenes? Do you uh, pick a character and develop a motif? What was your approach with this one? Because I know every composer approaches things differently. I know. I love how Brian Tyler. Uh, does his scoring for Yellowstone versus how he does it with films. Uh, other composers, Aaron Zygman, uh, that I've spoken with numerous times. I'm curious where you actually start from a musical standpoint. Great question. I It, it can be different based on the project, and certainly um, if it's television versus film versus a game, something like that, it can it can be different. Um, a lot of it has to do with my schedule too. If 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 I get the call and we only have a few weeks to get the entire score done, I just have to get going immediately, and I don't have a whole lot of time to to do anything other than just kind of chronologically go through the score. But I will oftentimes, and in this case, uh, this is how I I worked. I will kind of pick 
what I think of as a very important pivotal scene that maybe incorporate a lot of the elements I'm going to need to pull from later. And in this case, I started with the, the winning ticket scene, which is you know what we see in the trailer. And, and I think there's been a, um, they, they released a, that a part of that scene anyway, um, a few days ago as well. So uh, it's nice to be able to talk about it without spoiling any, anything for anyone. Yes. But I knew in that scene <laughs> that we were going to have um, some tension, which, you know, if I had to use one word to describe this movie, tension is probably it. So yeah. we're building a little tension. You know something's cooking in that scene. Something's going on. The music is pretty light and out of the way, but it's adding a feeling of like, uh-oh, something, what's going to happen here? And then, it, and then the scene really explodes into all of the chaos. But it was also a great chance to work in some of the holiday stuff. And so I started there, and, uh, and it was super fun, especially bringing in the vocal um, and, and having, like, kind of a play off of a very familiar holiday, you know, melody, mm-hmm. uh, a fragmented version of that anyway, kind of play out um, in a funny way, you know, when the magazine cover hits the floor. Uh, and then, of course, this just the kind of bizarre, like, what's he doing when he's taping this thing around his head? You know, it's just such an interesting, compelling scene all the way through. And it was a longer scene. I can't remember the exact length, but I think it's like, you know, maybe five minutes or something. So that gave me a really good um, kind of foundation by the time I finished that that scene that I could pull from throughout the rest of the film. Uh, so that that's how I started in this case. And then once I had that, there was a little bit of jumping around, but I, I pretty much went through it chronologically uh, as I worked. And, um, you know, I felt like there was kind of like a few different main ideas in this movie. There was this, the action slash holiday kind of vibes. And then there was like all the moments where they're talking and plotting um, and scheming, you know, and what are we going to do musically there? And then sometimes it gets very, very emotional. You know, there's some really pretty heavy conversations, um, you know, that whole idea of what would you do if you had a million dollars? I mean, that's a, that's a several minute scene of Mm -hmm. uh, where we get a glimpse of, what is driving some of the decisions that these people are making, um, which can be a bit surprising, you know, what they decide to do. But after their, after you learn more about their, their backstory, you realize, Oh, this, this makes sense. I can, I can, you know, that's believable. So um, yeah, it was really fun to just get to really kind of uh, diverge in a bunch of different paths. But I feel like that that winning ticket scene was kind of important for me to start there. Now, you know, once once you start there with this one, <clears throat> excuse me, um, did you actually uh, have the benefit of the needle drops to work with as well? No. So um, I got a pretty, like a rough cut of the film early on, about I guess about a week or two probably after Dan and I first met. Um, and of course, you know, the edit's constantly changing all the way up till the very end. Um, you know, they're they're, you know, tightening it and tightening it every, every time. And it's always an amazing process to see um, because you, you see the, the, you know, you see kind of this rough cut of the film and you, you're like, oh, this is feeling pretty good. But then every time I would get a new cut, I'm like, oh, man, this is just this is turning out to be fantastic. The pacing of this is so, so good and so well done. And, and hats off to, to Nick DeZio. You know, he did a great job. And um, that makes my job easier when, when the edit's really working and, and everything feels great and the performances are great. That then I can just focus on what what story do we want to tell. I'm not trying to solve any problems. You know, sometimes um, you know the I'll, I'll be said I'll be told you know, gosh, you know this scene has just been feeling kind of slow. We really are hoping you can you know bring some pace to this with the music, things like that. And uh, so you're trying to like fix issues rather than than just focus on uh, storytelling. 
And, um, and so, you know, I had such a great uh, cat to work with. As it pertains to the needle drop, that was something that there were some, some of the uh, holiday tunes uh, were in place, but a lot of them were temporary and ultimately got replaced. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you just do your best. Um, and as those pieces started to come in, um, then, you know, that would give me a chance to make sure that I'm dovetailing in and out of these pieces as well as I can. And also, you know, that's the genius of the, of the mixer. I mean, uh, you know, very talented, um, man, Roland, he did a great job on, on the mix. And and when I heard it, I thought, man, he really, he really brought this all together. It feels great. It flows great. So, you know, it really is a collaborative effort. Well, and I'm glad that you brought up the, the mixing because the sound mix and the sound edit, I took a particular note of with this one because there are so many scenes that so often uh, you would expect the score to be brought up, to swell up louder. And it doesn't. It actually goes down lower so that we really, we hear the whispers. Because mm-hmm. we have these people and they're actually, it's like a clandestine mission operation <laughs> that, they, that they're participating in. And even though they're the only ones in the store, there are moments where they're hushed and they're whispering, and yet there is still an undercurrent of your score there, where there are many cases, I can think of many filmmakers, that would have had the sound mix bring the score up so that it, was, it would almost be a battle between the, the hushed dialogue and the music. And that wasn't the case here, which actually makes the music stand out more. If that makes oh, thank sense. You for, yeah, thank you for saying that. That I love moments where you make the audience lean in a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, I love that feeling when I'm watching a movie and and I'm kind of like, oh, what's going on here? It draws you in, and I think um, you know, I'm all, I try to be very careful about when the music takes center stage. There's mm-hmm. times where where it works really well to have it do just that. But a lot of the time, the most effective scores, you almost don't notice that they're there anymore or you don't at all. That's, in my mind, that's, there's a lot of success there because the, the audience is just having an experience at this point. Mm-hmm. It's no longer, oh, there's an actor and there's you know, the scene and there's editing and there's music and sound design. It's one thing. You're in a world, you're completely involved and absorbed by that. And you know, I think that's, for me, that is the, the best success that I can have. Now, question for you, because instrumentation is so key in so many scores. Uh, and again, I have to mention Brian, uh, Tyler, and Yellowstone, because the instrumentation that he incorporates, it gives like a Native American feel, it's a train feel, it does the Old West feel. It's incredible. Um, and I'm curious, do you, and I know he does all of his own instrumentation, and when he's composing, he is at that moment determining what instrumentation he wants to use for what passage or motif within the score. Did you Do you operate in a similar fashion when you did Your Lucky Day? Did you also consider the instrumentation for the scoring at certain points? Absolutely, yeah. It's such an important part of it, you know, instrumentation, orchestration, composition, you know, we, we sometimes break these into different categories and talk about them as if they're separate things, but really they're all working together to create a musical moment. And um, in this case, 
you know, there's a lot of ways you can go. And, and sometimes, you know, the, the, the feeling, and a lot of this is, is dependent on the director's vision. Um, but, you know, sometimes you want to go with a completely electronic score, you know, um, something like Drive or, you know, that has like a really kind of almost 80s quality to it right. that's really cool and nostalgic. Or sometimes, you know, you want that big sweeping orchestral John Williams type of score, um, you know, have that, that classic Hollywood sound. Um, and anywhere in between. And this is definitely very much a hybrid score. I wanted to bring um, the gravitas to the film that I, I think that only the orchestra can bring. So I did have, um, and really by orchestra, I mean strings. You know, it was primarily yeah. a, a string section for this. So I knew that a lot of these moments were going to have, uh, you know, underpinnings in the strings. But there's a lot of textural uh, synth and guitar and vocal uh, and just treated sounds happening throughout the score as well, which I love. You know, I got my start as a kid as a guitarist, and so I think, um, and I was really into you know rock music, and I had you know so I had effects pedals, and I was always fascinated with the tone of things and the, the timbre of things. And then you know before I was composing full time, I worked as a sound designer and mixer at an audio post house uh, up in Seattle, and so I uh, there I am again, really focusing on the sonic qualities mm -hmm. and textures of things. And so I'm, a, I'm very much influenced by color. I like to infuse a lot of texture and color into my music. Um, and so that was that definitely all very conscientious decisions. You know, I knew I wanted strings in there. I did not want it to be 100% synth score. Um, but I did want to have some of these interesting colors that synths and other instruments have to, to you know, that can bring to the table. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that there are that you do have the strings in there because also because it is Christmas Eve and yeah. so many times you have, you know, court, string quartets and all that do Christmas performances. So you think of you think of string quartets, you think of harps. Um, so we also get that feel that will touch a memory sense. Uh, in listening to this score, it will not seem out of place. You will, it will feel Christmassy at moments, which is what exactly what you want. Hundred percent, yeah. And, and interestingly, some of the other instruments that you hear on occasion, you know, maybe there's a sleigh bell in there, but yes. it's kind of you know treated to sound you know kind of echoey and 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 really like a heavy amount of reverb and some interesting you know, um, timbre shifts to it. So it's reminiscent of the holidays. It's a sleigh bell, but it's also kind of got a different character to it. Um, same thing with, you know, choral vocals that you'll mm -hmm. hear in, in the score. Yep. Uh, everything that was traditional uh, and holiday has something in it usually that, that pushes it into a slightly, um, uh, you know, out of the ordinary sound, I guess. And that was, that was also something I was very keen on doing with this because this is not a, you know, it's not a straight ahead holiday film. No. <laughs> you know? uh, it's definitely very dark. And so, um, I, you know, that was fun to get to weave those moments in and, and have it all work together, but not just be on the nose. Oh, suddenly we're in a holiday movie. Like that felt too jarring. It needed to be a little bit more, um, a little smoother than, than that, I think. And so hopefully, well, we achieved that. Well, I think you did. And come on, any movie about somebody with a lottery ticket winning $156 million, that's a holiday in and of itself. So you can get away with a lot. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. That's you all. sure can. That's... And that was, you know, what a great, just a great concept too, you know, to have, you know, this, this wealthy guy rolls up in his G wagon and, you know, buys a ticket in front of a bunch of people struggling. Um, and, and, you know, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, there's an opportunity to, to get their hands on it. And, uh, you know, what, what's, uh, the opening of the film says, you know, this is based on the American dream. And, um, yeah, what's, what's, what ties into the American dream these days more than Christmas time and winning lottery tickets, you know? Especially with the huge, you know, mega billions that have been up for grabs recently and the media frenzy. It's no longer just, hey, buy a lottery ticket because the money goes to help the schools. Now it's, you can win $100 million. You can win $4 billion. Uh, and the media frenzy just feeds into it, which feeds the personality types that we see in Your Lucky Day. And I, I really found that a very interesting tact for Dan to take. but Because everybody, I think, can relate to that. Ooh, what if I won? What if I won? What would I do? Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't do that. Guess what? You probably would if you had the chance. <laughs> Very interestingly, years ago, I worked on a, an, ad camp, an ad campaign for um, the Washington State Lottery. And so I was actually <laughs> going out and recording and helping. I wasn't the one doing the interview, but I was recording the audio of lottery winners uh, and their stories. And it was fascinating to hear all the different stories and how frequently uh, they would win. And this is back, you know, usually it was a, a million bucks, five yeah. million bucks, something like that, but how quickly that money was gone. Yep. And that was a, a common story. You know, they, it they would just, you know, it would be gone in a matter of a couple of years. They'd go and buy some homes and some cars and then that's it. There was no investing going on. So it was kind of amazing. Like, um, how quickly, how quickly the money could get burned through. Look, I'm not greedy. I will gladly take just $250,000. I don't need 156 million. I'll just take 250. That's good enough for me, not to be greedy. Yep. So now, what is next for you, Matt? Next for me uh, are a couple of projects that, unfortunately, I can't talk about specifically. I'm under NDA on both of them, but of I'm course. just getting started on a uh, AAA video game, which I'm really excited about. Uh, and then I'm also um, already working on another film. Uh, which is, uh, is is super fun. We're uh, again just kind of getting started on that, um, and then uh, you know I think there might be more uh, coming from from Mr. Daniel Brown uh, soon as well. So I'm I'm excited to see what he does next. Um, so yeah, it's been great to be busy uh, during this time. Mm-hmm. You know, with the strikes and everything that I've been going on. Uh, normally I have a, a fall schedule that's that's pretty busy with uh, television work. Uh, but this year, that's not the case. So I'm really grateful to have these other projects to, to dig into. And they've just been really enjoyable. Well, I've been an admirer of your work. I mean, I know you've, you've worked on some great uh, things. Tuscaloosa, you've done Ma, which I just love the score on Ma. Um, Thank you. Thank I, you. And hats off to, to the lead composer on Ma, Greg Trippy. I wrote additional music for that. And uh, so he was, you know, he's such a, he's such a genius as well. And, um, you know, he really, uh, it's always great when we've gotten to work together. 
Uh, and that was a case where that was, you know, very much an electronic score. And, and mm-hmm. it's always really fun to get to dig into that world and, and come up with all kinds of crazy sounds. And so that, that was super fun. Well, so many people, when they hear, think electronic score, they think Miami Vice. And yeah. uh, no, there is so much more to that. Uh, and I love when it's brought out and used judiciously and appropriately in a film. Um, mm. Just, you're going to have to come back on the show again, Matt. No question. Absolutely. You're going to have to come um, back. I'm going to bug Mr. Dan Brown on Wednesday when I talk to him about what he's got coming up in the future uh, and see if I can pinpoint him on uh, some tidbits when he might be using you again. But, Matt. Yes, that would be amazing. I, I, uh, I, I sure hope so, and I always <laughs> love working with him, so I'm, I'm, ex- I'm always excited to see what he's cooking up. Oh, Matt, this has been so wonderful. I can't thank you enough. And everybody can hear your work in your lucky day on November 10th this week. Yes, they can. Yeah, they can. Uh, the, the film premieres at the Alamo Draft House in select cities around the country including downtown L.A. So if you are here in L.A., go check it out. And then that same day, uh, my soundtrack album uh, drops on all the streaming platforms. Mm -hmm. So whatever you are into, Apple Music, Spotify, whatever, um, you'll be able to find the soundtrack album there. And uh, I think it's a fun lesson. So I hope you, uh, you know, check it out. Well, Matt, thank you, thank you. And hopefully we're going to chat sooner rather than later again. I hope so. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Thanks, Matt. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was composer Matt Hutchinson talking about your lucky day. Now, we go from your lucky day to a wild and wacky and wonderful film and Jerry Brunskill. Hi, Jerry. Hello, hello. Hi. Hi, how are you? I am thrilled to be speaking with you about it, <laughs> Adventures of the Naked Umbrella Man. Uh, I am in love with this film. It, really? It, oh. It is crazy. It is wild. You're me goosebumps. It's wild. It's wacky. Jeremy Davies is off the charts bonkers. But He's a master. But the way you have written his character of Sam, he has so much heart. And so much compassion. Um, that blew my mind. You have my <laughs> long time, my longtime friend, Richard Reilly, in drag oh. as a grandmother. Oh my God! Isn't that great. I have such a great story about that. How that character came too. So. And of course, Taryn Manning is incredible. Tom Arnold never yeah. disappoints me. Tom never disappoints me. Just. I mean, the casting is great. The characters are great. The whole idea of this story is great. Mm. And you kick it off, and we hear the Naked Umbrella podcast, underground radio, whatever Jeremy's character Sam is doing, and going off about conspiracies and aliens, and your visuals are just (laughs) power-packed. I just, and I was in love at that moment, and I couldn't wait to see where this film went, and I watched it twice. Oh. Back to back. I loved it so much. 
Debbie, I, I, I'm, I'm truly sitting here with goosebumps. I'm just, this makes me so happy. You know, this is, and of course the fact that you shot this at Bombay Beach, down on the Salton Sea, uh, that just adds so much character. Mm. That's a character in the film. It absolutely is. Talk absolutely. to, give everybody, what is, how would you describe the premise of this film? Well, I think <laughs> the premise the premise is about truth and what truth really means in this day and age. Um, it was inspired, if I even use that term, uh, I don't know that that's appropriate, but I was absolutely compelled to write this movie during COVID quarantine when we were all going bonkers. We were all on social media and everybody seemed to be just going down rabbit holes left and right. And I, I was just kind of losing my mind and I was feeling um, anger and fear. And I mean, we all were feeling fear. We all were feeling, you know, uh, scared, at least me scared literally to death, you know, that, you know, this might be the end of everything and all that. And and people were kind of, you know, again, just following these really crazy, you know, um, rabbit holes. And I realized that I was feeling some um, sort of anger for my fellow human being. And I said, first, I got to get off Facebook. I got to get off the Internet. And secondly, I need to figure out why this is happening. I need to get in the heads of people um, and just understand more, you know, why they're doing this. And um so I, I literally drove out. My friend had a place out at Bombay Beach in the Salton Sea, and I drove out there and locked myself in her trailer, and I wrote this thing in two weeks. It just poured out of me. Um, it just, I couldn't stop it, and the characters just started saying things. You know you're in the zone when you lose five hours, and you, know, and you realize you haven't gone to the bathroom in five hours, and these characters won't shut up. And um, it was just remarkable. And ultimately, I realized that what I had endeavored to do was personalize these people on the other side of the Internet uh, and give them backstory. And, and um, I wanted to root for these people. I wanted people to love Sam and Irene and everybody, really, because everyone in the movie is sort of damaged goods, mm -hmm. as we all are. Um, but, um, you know, I just wanted everybody to leave cheering for our you know do we call him a protagonist do we call him antagonist you know is he i think we need a new word for these kind of characters but um and then when i you know heard that jeremy wanted to speak to me about the about the role uh, the minute i met him i was just like oh my god i met sam and he's got such a delightful vulnerability but i'm jumping ahead anyway um so that's sort of where it came from. But really, it's just an examination of truth, mm -hmm. what truth means in this day and age, given that, uh, you know, the majority of people derive their news from social media now, and the so-called establishment is really passe, especially for younger people. Mm -hmm. um, the truth is taking on an entirely different meaning. And it's clear, you know, given the political climate and the environment and so many things that are happening that the truth means different things to different people and i think that's here to stay
So we might as well have a little fun with all this, right? Well, you definitely do have a little fun with the truth and interpretations. And, you know, at the end of this film, all I kept thinking is the truth is out there. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and I think that that actually may sum it all up in a nutshell about the whole world. The truth is out there. It may not be here. <laughs> it might be somewhere else. Um, but it, it just... You explore everything, and nobody, as you mentioned, everybody, they're, they're bruised, they're damaged, they're flawed. Um, but what you also do is, for the longest time, it's always, okay, this group, they're truth-tellers, this group. Mm-hmm. And for decades, for centuries, we have relied on, on certain individuals um, mm-hmm. such as the police, that, yes, they are truth-tellers, they are there to help us, blah, blah, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, mm-hmm. And they're not safe. You, you show us and expose them, but you show us good and bad with everything you show us, both sides of the coin and the filler in the middle. <laughs> um, and I really love that. Um, and that, and nobody, uh, comes out of this unscathed except for possibly Sam because of the purity of his belief and his heart. And by the middle of this film, I was so in love with Sam and his fight to tell the truth, the unvarnished truth about the world. Mm-hmm. And his passion and commitment and his devotion to his wife, Irene. That kind yeah. of pure love. How can you not love this person? I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. And I'm just, you are, you are getting the exact essence of what I endeavored to create. So my deepest <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Forgetting it. <laughs> uh, I, I just, and that's why I had to watch it twice, back to back, mm. um, because it is so engrossing. And I love the characters and the story so much. But you have so much visually going on here. We have mm-hmm. stuff happening in Sam and Irene's trailer, we have stuff happening in Granny's, you know, double wide mobile home. <laughs> Um, and so many things in there. Uh, I'm sorry, so much what? So many different things. Great set decoration. Great set decoration there. Um, and then, of course, everything that takes place down there on Bombay Beach and the, the incredible, the world famous, um, you know, mountain there. And then we're we're out there on the sand dunes. Uh, in white sands, and just there is so much visually to unpack. And then, of course, you have quiet moments, such as at night with just a fire pit and a fire going, and Sam sitting there talking to, is he on drugs? Is he stoned? Is he imagining? Is he hallucinating? And these quiet, rational moments of conversation Mm -hmm. are so striking against 
the freneticism that we also see unfolding in between. Just, and the way you have spaced that out editorially, uh, you take us to highs, you bring us down. Much like Sam's manic episodes. That's exactly, exactly what I set to do. I, I wanted the rhythm and timing of the film to sort of be a, uh, a version of Sam's mind, you mm-hmm. know, because um, that's the way he is. And you definitely achieve that. But so much of that is thanks to the cinematography and some visual and some visual effects. How mm-hmm. you've got this written down. You have these great characters uh, on the page. Um, at what point did you start storyboarding or shot listing or thinking of the visuals that you wanted to bring, uh, to make this come to life? Um, having written it at Bombay, I was, I was literally living the movie in my head visually as I wrote it. And I would, you know, go out for walks um, walk along the shore of salt and sea and and you know i'd have a scene in mind and i would just sort of be standing in it and you know as you said that place in and of itself is a storyteller it's yeah it's a hollywood backlot it's just everywhere you point the camera there's something pretty to look at mm-hmm. and yet it's apocalyptic and you know sort of a natural not a natural disaster a man-made disaster uh, you know becoming a increasing problem every day with sort of the you know the the, the ground soil getting kicked up from yep. lack of water, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, that that environment was sort of helping me tell the story as I was there. So I knew that, you know, the movie I had just written would normally cost 5 to $7 million, and I knew what I was going to have to make it. And um, so I thought, well, let's, you know, it would be even more interesting if we, uh, set this, you know, during Christmas time so that, you know, there's holiday lighting that we can use as practical lighting mm-hmm. and, you know, it's colorful. And yet, you know, there's something really interesting visually about putting, you know, decorating dilapidated old trailers with, yeah. you know, sparkly little Christmas lights. You know, there's the, the, that duality in and of itself. And, you know, just the themes of Santa Claus, you know, also a big lie that most children are peddled to when they're little, you know, like what is the truth? And, and where is it? No, no, Santa's real. Santa's real. Okay. You're right. You know what? I, I agree, but, and and that's just the thing. (laughs) Sam would tell you that Santa's real, um, because he can be real in our own minds, you know, just as you say during that scene at the campfire, which is my favorite scene in the movie. Um, I love that scene so much. You know, it's real for Sam. So I don't even care if it's real or not, you know, in the reality of whatever this world is. I'm just very interested to hear what they talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and they talk about, you know, the nature of time and life and death and, you know. And just, those I, are not themes that one would expect to hear in the, a film like this. It's exactly why I wrote them because you don't see this stuff in the movies, you know? It's like, it has to be genre-based. You can do a comedy, it's got to be a comedy. Oh, you can put that seriously in there. Who says, you know? like Comedy comes from I, truth. Comedy comes from the truth of inherent situations and true emotions. 
I firmly yeah. believe that. You don't have comedy 100%. without it, without pulling it from the truth of a situation, an inherent situation, an inherent trait. Something, yeah. comedy taps into that. 100%. I, um, my most iconic favorite comic moments don't come from comedies. They come from dramas. Yeah. Where whoever constructs the scene, whoever writes the scene, whoever shoots the scene, this executes reality. Well, you know, the reality of life. And life is, uh, it's, you know, it's both a comedy and a tragedy. But Yeah, it's messy. You know, there can be exquisitely funny moments in some really dire situations. It's just like, how many times have we, you know, seen somebody wipe out and fall down and just can't hold the laughter in? I mean, it's just a really odd human trait, but it, it's there. Well, and uh, come on, if you cannot laugh at a man, you know, holding on for dear life to his little plastic pig named Kevin, um, <laughs> that just blew, and that's at the top of the film, and it blew my mind. Of course, <laughs> as the film develops, and by the time we get to that third act, um, then it's like, whoa, and... You know, and here again, it's everything is rooted in the truth, the yeah. real truth, the unvarnished truth. Um, but then this is where your cinematography, the the lensing of this film, the framing yeah. and the lighting, because you're going with so much natural light here, which, of course, you've got plenty of it uh, down there. Uh, mm -hmm. And so much of this, it's exteriors. With, a, yeah. you know, a few interior um, setups, such as Granny's Place, Sam's Place. Of course, mm -hmm. Sam's Place, we don't need, you know, isn't around too long. Um, no. So you start us off with a real bang uh, with, yeah. with Sam's Place. But everything is light and bright and very open. The things that are closed, Granny's house, everything... The dark wooded, you know, pretend paneling inside that old 1970s plastic paneling uh, that lines yeah. the interior. Blinds are closed, drapes are drawn, so that everything it's hidden. It's hidden, which explains uh, the whole characterization of Richard as Granny. Uh, <laughs> you know, the things that are hidden. Same thing with. You know, he, he Richard loved this character so much. <laughs> I bet he, he did. Was like, but he he said, "Do you want me to shave my mustache?" And I went, Re "What?" Like like I thought I had originally thought that Granny would just you know be dressed like an old Granny, but have a mustache. But he was like, "No, we got to go for this." And I was like, "Dude, when was the last time you shaved your mustache for a role?" And he goes, "I never have." He never has. <laughs> That, yeah. I was gobsmacked. I actually had to freeze frame. I had to pause. Because <laughs> in all the years I have known Richard, I have never seen him without that mustache. I mean, it's oh. kind of like Sam Elliott without one. Exactly right. That is a trademark of his. You know, I was so honored that he would do it. You know, I almost felt like I was desecrating something holy. But, you know, he offered some. Oh my God! But the <laughs> but you know you've got 
the things that are hidden there, but then everything else is it's very out in the open. Yes. So everything is being exposed. Your metaphor is stunning. Absolutely mm. stunning. Thank um, you so much. The visual metal metaphor and the visual tonal bandwidth that really mirrors the emotional tonal bandwidth here. You did a beautiful I job wanna, with that. I was just going to say, I, I just wanted to mention both my cinematographer, VP, um, Peter Cascanetti, and my um, production designer, um, Susanna Hillard, who just hit it out of the park. I mean, they really did. Uh, incredibly talented people and, and have multiple talents. Um, Susie is also an actress. She's in the movie as well as Tom Arnold's wife. Um, but she, um, well, both of them. I mean, you said the lensing, Pete's choices on lensing. Oh. And um, we were just so in sync. Um, you know, these are two of my great friends. Um, you know, this wasn't just a pairing for this movie. I mean, we've all, this, this team of us has worked together for years. We did another movie together in 2017, and um, I'm just, I'm a huge fan of them both. And, and the, as you say, the movie looks spectacular. The, yep. the way Pete shot it and the way Susie uh, designed it is, is perfect. It was as it was in my head. What were you shooting this on? What cameras and lenses we were you doing? On, we were originally going to shoot on uh, the Alexa Mini, mm -hmm. and we decided, uh, well, both the, the Alexas, Alexas are beautiful, wonderful cameras, but they need a lot of help um, from support, you know, um, ACs. And, and because we, unfortunately, were shooting in the middle of winter at the lowest point in the Northern Hemisphere, um, <laughs> you have... Palm Springs heat in July and humidity, which you don't really get except in this little pocket where mm -hmm. the Salton Sea sits. And um, a lot of cameras, a lot of the big, bigger body cameras are prone to overheating, especially the red. And so, you know, Pete said, hey, I've been working with the Canon um, C500. Um, you should really check it out. And, you know, at first I kind of, eh, I want to make the, you know, I want to make it on the camera everybody uses. But, you know, we did some <laughs> tests with it and I was blown away blown away pete's got these gorgeous old prime lenses uh. um, that he's sort of collected and built himself um and they're they've just got this you know it's just old glass you just you can't make old glass with new glass nope. you know it just doesn't exist nope. so um that certainly um gave the flavor and then when we went into the really darker exteriors like the sand dunes we realized that because of the wind, we couldn't really put up uh, an illumination ball or anything that was going to be prone to getting slapped around by that wind at night. So mm -hmm. um, we decided to use the uh, Sony A7S threes because they're you know just incredible with low light. Um, and if you look, if you really look at those scenes in the dunes, you can occasionally see a small little flashing that's happening. And we realized much later in post that it is from a radio tower about three miles away that the camera was picking up still, like the little um, little blip increase in lighting um, during yeah. the flash of those lights from the radio tower. Yeah, because, I mean, it's, you know, FCC requirements. You've got to have those little flashes on the radio tower. Um, exactly. So... And that's always a very cool thing when you're in a place like that and all of a sudden you see those tiny little blips. Some of us will know yeah. what they are. 
Um, yes. <laughs> but I, I kind of loved how it just all played into, yes. you know, what could it be? Could it be the, the alien? Like, what is it, you know? You know, it just, it really, it just fed into Sam's whole mindset. Mm-hmm. Now, you also bring in, you've got some fantastic visual effects. Who Thank did you. the visual effects? <laughs> um, the, uh, the guy that created our alien, his name is Rectavius, by the way. Um, and that name was given to us by the guy who did the motion capture, the motion capture actor, um, Vinny, um, Vinny gave us uh, the idea for Rectavius because there's a whole talk about butt stuff, you know, the grades yes. are into the butt stuff. Um, but uh, so Rectavius was a motion capture, um, and then we inserted that into a 3D model um, that we bought on the internet. And then Michael, I always mangle his name. He's, I feel bad I'm going to say, it. I'm going to try it anyway. Uh, Michael Vistioni, Vistioni, it's an Italian name. What can I say? Um, <laughs> Michael uh, is just a wonderful, wonderful, talented human being who labored on all of the alien stuff, the saucer he created out of thin air. Even that long shot, that long uh, intro shot where we kind of fly past the saucer uh-huh. and into the dunes and we find the two of them talking, that's all virtual. There's, the only thing that's it's real gorgeous. in that shot is is the Disco Inferno truck um, that we composited into the scene. Everything else is fake. And with so, two mirror balls, a small one yeah. inside and a big one on the on the flat bed in the back. <laughs> I mean, where else can we get disco mirror balls but in a Jerry Brunskill film? Uh, well, uh, maybe that's something I'm going to have to put into every film. I don't know. I, I loved having it. Um, I, you know, I'm a uh, longtime attendee of Burning Man Festival, and uh-huh. um, I loved how how the burner culture um, sort of just fit in Sam's world. And of course, as a recovering pyromaniac, he's a former burner that can no longer attend because it's, as he says in the movie, uh, a trigger issue or something like yes. that. Yes, what I have to say. Um, so uh, yeah, so the yeah the uh, the Disco Inferno truck was sort of his old. Burning Man art car that he no longer can bring to Burning Man because he no longer can go. So I got the biggest kick out of out of seeing that. That just just you know rolling along uh, out there in the <laughs> desert, nothing around. Um, yeah. <laughs> now you know they're on the run. They're on the they're on the lamb, but they have this disco truck that's flashing lights as bright as can be. <laughs> and a plastic pig named Kevin. Yeah, plastic pig. So that also was sort of one of those wonderful, beautiful accidents. Um, I had initially written Kevin as a real pig. Um, and uh, we had shot a proof of concept like a month after I wrote the film, um, just out of boredom. We went out and I went out there with um, some of the same guys that ended up in the movie. And we shot the proof of concept and we had a real pig. that um, was friendly. When... We went to shoot the real movie. The pig was mean and kept biting Terrence. And, oh, my um, God. So uh, it's, <laughs> we, we, we like had a production meeting like after the first big scene with her. I was like, this isn't going to work. And then um, I honestly don't know if it was me or someone else. Because I had, I had purchased a couple of those pigs, those Kevin pigs, off 
Amazon. Mm -hmm. I'm just a stand-in, um, you know, just sure. in case we needed, you know, something to fill the frame in the background. Um, but I, yeah, I honestly don't remember. But we were like, what if, what if Kevin's not real? It's fake, and it actually works so much better, so much better. The way you have the story written, and, hmm? the way you've written this Sorry? story, it works so much better because it really feeds into reveals that we get in that third act. Yes. Yes. I I am so thrilled that you went with. So I'm sorry that you know Taryn was getting, you know, bitten bit by pigs, but it really worked <laughs> to your advantage. Um because it adds It really did. It really does. Now, did yeah. you did you yeah. you are a prolific editor? Did you cut this film yourself? I did. I figured as much. Um, yeah. Because to put this together, it has to be from your mind. And I cannot see you sitting with someone else and saying, well, I want this and I want this and I want this just because of the very nature of the visuals. Yeah, that's. That's exactly right. Um, you know, I'm I'm just a I'm a very hands-on guy, and you know the, the way I sort of fell into filmmaking. You know, I, I came to Hollywood as a music composer. I um, had been in a rock and roll band for years. Came to Hollywood, didn't want to travel on the road. I got a couple of TV shows, you know, scoring, and got so burnt out that I was like, well. I'm not going to be able to make my living doing this either. So now what am I going to do? And <laughs> so that's how I landed into filmmaking. I mean, I have, I went to school for journalism and, you know, I've done a lot of that kind of work in my career as well, but um, I, it was out of necessity that I sort of just taught myself how to edit. And, you know, problem is a lot of guys that write and then edit their stuff or shoot and write their stuff you don't want to kill your babies. You know, we got this great, we got this great scene. So wonderful. Like, um, I don't want to have to cut it, but you know, that's not really storytelling. So luckily I'm okay with, you know, losing things that have to go because it doesn't fit the story, even though it's a beautiful shot. Like this is whole other undercurrent. There's like a, a D storyline that happens with Taryn. Um, and I'm mm -hmm. not going to tell you because, who knows? Could director's cut. Director's um, cut. Pardon me? Director's cut. Director's cut. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things that uh, I've already got in a director's cut that we're going to premiere next uh, next uh, or this Thursday night, actually. Ooh. In Los Angeles, we're doing a premiere. So. Ooh. Are you? Are, where are you at? I'm in L.A. I'm in L.A. You want to come? Where is it being held at? At at the Westwood Village, at beautiful theater. Well, I just might be able to do that. Oh, my goodness. I'd love you to come. It'd be great. It's one uh, of my favorite theaters. You know, Quentin used it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when, um, I'm forgetting her name now, but. Um, yeah, I'll give. She sees herself in the movies, yeah. Um, I'll hook up with Kim and, you know, but, and let her know. I'm sorry, say again? I'll hook up with Kim. Um, Please do. You know. so I'll make I'll make sure we get you some tickets, and uh, I'd love you to come. It's uh, we're doing a special cut and doing some fun things. So. Now, uh, the music here, the music, yeah. this entire thing, the score, needle drops, 
are just, they came right out of Sam's mind. That's so true. Um, This is the first big project I've ever done where I didn't do the score myself, and that was intentional. Because I feel like it becomes less dimensional if it's just me. And uh, I've collaborated with this wonderfully talented um, musician, songwriter, Jeff Victor, um, who I grew up with in my hometown of Minneapolis. Um, and I just, I knew instantly that I wanted Jeff to be a part of it because he's, he's got this, um, he's got this ability to sort of travel into a, a parallel universes and like, you know, we wanted to get chestnuts roasting on an open fire when Sam's being rained down upon by, you know, debris from his house. And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, of course, that was going was not going to be cost effective. And so, I mean, Jeff literally put on his spacesuit and went to another place, another <laughs> universe, wrote a song. I swear to goodness, could be a hit song, you know, in another world. Um, you know, The Ghost of Christmas Past is the song he came up with. And we found this amazing singer, Jacob Luttrell, who's a session guy here in L.A., who just, I was like, Jacob, do you think you could do Nat King Cole? He's like, can I do Nat King Cole? <laughs> I mean, and uh, and that was the experience musically throughout this film. Like, wow. Jeff has brought, in my personal opinion, Jeff brought so much to the storytelling that I actually gave him some of my writer's share of of ownership of the movie because I really feel that strongly about it what he brought to this project musically. Now, are you going to release a soundtrack with all of these original songs in the score? We are. We are. Oh, thank God. It's going to be on Spotify. It's going to be on iTunes. Well, I was just actually working on it with Jeff last night, but, you know, we've got Tom Arnold signed off on his karaoke performance of uh, Santa's Got a Package. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I, I, sent him, I sent him the mixed track you know, because we built it uh, off of like we had, I think we had three or four takes on that karaoke song, and uh, I was able to get enough. We actually got the whole song, and so that'll be on the soundtrack. And then Jeff did a big band kind of swing version of it for the end credits. It's really fun. It's just so much incredible music. It you is know? all again. We're happy accidents because you know, well, hey, we can't get Nat King Cole. Hey, we can't get Hank Williams. Hey, we can't get. Uh, Disco Inferno from the Tramps. So Jeff went again and just created these amazing tunes that work so perfectly. Yeah, I fell in love with the songs uh, and the eclectic nature of them as well. Yes, that's what was another thing. I I just wanted the soundtrack to be all of again very reflective of Sam. Uh, the, the, everything, this whole film screams Sam. We are seeing everything in this film through Sam's mind's eye. And it just makes you, as I said at the top, by by the second act, the middle of the second act, you are in love with this man and his passion and his love for his wife and his compassion for other people. And that whole story between Sam and his parole officer, Yolanda, is that adds another whole dimension to who he is. I know. It's beautiful. I, know. I wanted to, I really wish I had more time to flesh that relationship out because um, it was so special. Yeah. You know, it was really so special. It was very unexpected. And the two of them, 
I'm sorry, say again? It was very unexpected. Yeah, I know. I know. I had written a bunch of other stuff about, you know, that gave more backstory as to why they connected. But, you know, movies being what they are, you can't make... Well, people do make three-hour movies, but I don't think it's a good idea. Or three-and-a-half-hour ones. Um, Exactly. But now, we've already run late today. Of course, I always run late. Kim will tell you that. I think we've only ended on time once in... Eh, maybe twice in, in nine and a half years. Um, but uh, I've got to ask you before I let you go, Jerry, yeah. what did yeah. you, this is your second feature. Yes. And it is wild, wacky, wonderful, brilliant. What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker from making Adventures mm. of the Naked Umbrella Man that you can now take forward into future projects? Oh, man, so many things. You know, every process, every film is really illuminating, um, even shorts for that matter. But I think it's my... I found my confidence as a filmmaker in this film. Um, Working with a guy like Jeremy Davies, who in my opinion, is one of the greatest actors alive today. Um, Just to stand next to him and be able to, you know, feel like I'm not pleading with him to do something for me, you know? Um, I found my confidence, and I'm going to take my confidence forward because I, I I I know that I can do this, and I enjoy the hell out of it, so why not? Well, it's obvious you enjoy it because you can't turn out a film like this if you didn't enjoy what you did and what you do. <laughs> you don't make a film like this unless you, unless you really do love what you do. Yeah. Uh, Jerry, this has been so wonderful getting to speak with you about Adventures of the Naked Umbrella Man. And I'm going to get in touch with Kim. Hopefully I'll be able to see you Thursday night. But if not, we, have to, we must chat again and very soon. Let's do that. Either way, I look forward to that very much. Oh, Jerry, thank you so, so much. Thank you. And everybody will be able to see this incredible journey of Sam uh, on November 10th. Wonderful. I'm so excited. Oh, Jerry, thank you. And you have a great rest of your week leading up to the premiere. Thanks so much. And I, I wish the same, and I really hope I get to see you Thursday night. I'm going to do my best. I'll check my calendar when I get home, and I will hook up with Kim and see what we can do. Great. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Jerry Brunskill talking about a new, one of my new favorites of the year, Adventures of the Naked Umbrella Man. Uh fabulous it will also be available on demand and in theaters uh on november 10th this thursday um thursday is the 10th isn't it pam what day yeah oh friday friday the 10th so your lucky day on the 10th naked umbrella man on the 10th next week we're going to talk about your lucky day again hopefully Uh, Nick Pizzillo is recovered and will be able to join us, the editor of the film. 
We'll also be talking about Butcher's Crossing starring Nick Cage, which Nick also edited. And we're going to be talking about a wonderful little short film called Man Baby that is currently on the festival circuit. So, and it has, it's kind of twisted. Um, but you guys all know I kind of like some twisted films now and again. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.